Um, uh, I missed our intro. That's okay, though. <laughs> Welcome uh, to, for those who don't know, to Clear Mountain's Wednesday evening live stream. It's great to be here again with uh, our old friend and my old mentor, Ajahn Satoro. Uh, thank you for joining us again, Ajahn, from across the, the Pacific. So for those of you who don't know, Ajahn Satoro, um, now I believe 16 bosses or something of that nature. I can't remember. A lot, a lot of. <laughs> a I, lot I, of I can't remember. I don't want to say because I remember wrong every time. Well, Ajahn Satoro, I, the first time I met him was at Wat Mapjan, where I ordained, and uh, he was my mentor and guide there for many years. And um, he was one of the wonderful monks who visited us here at Clear Mountain last year and held down the fort when Ajahn Kobe and I were gone. I believe we were your first snowfall. Is that correct, Ajahn? Yep. yep. Yeah. He I, called me afterwards and they're like, it's it's kind of cold, actually. Yep. So and it burnt and it burnt my lungs. <laughs> so it burnt my lungs. And uh so um, but he's currently also working uh to explore the science and research behind meditation, morality, and these other ways of looking at the practices we so often talk about in Buddhist circles. And uh, we're just delighted to have him as uh, part of our community. And thank you for joining us, Ajahn. No, it's, it's, it's great to be here. And it's good that I can do it in a time zone where I'm not half falling asleep. It's morning where I am now. So I'm in Taiwan at the moment. Um, so it's, 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 it's good to be able to do this and not, you know, be falling asleep. <laughs> well, we're also fans and, uh, Ajahn, would you give a little more of your background? What have you been up to these last few years and what's landed you, you know, what do you kind of give us a bit of the, the last few years, the narrative? Yeah. So the last few years, um, so I went to, I went back to Australia in about 2015, I think it was. Um, and I was in Australia, just at some monasteries there, and I, you know, uh, essentially have a background in academia, and then I started to move back into academia while also doing the, you know, the usual monastic things that I do, um, and currently I'm in Melbourne at the moment at a place called the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Newbury Buddhist Monastery, um, that's the Buddhist side of things that I do. But then I'm also in, involved uh, at uh, one of the universities in Australia, and it's called Monash University, at a centre called the Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies, uh, where we look at all different kinds of aspects of contemplative science, uh, consciousness science, uh, and also the philosophy around these a lot of these issues. And so my my little my little two cents worth in those areas is, as you said, Nisabo, I look at I look at uh, the morality that might arise out of different contemplative practices like meditation. What kind of ethical implications do do practicing something like meditation? What does it what does it involve? What kind of moral functioning arises from these practices? And also, what do states of you know states of you know these these deep, profound states that we can get from meditation? What does that do to your morality in some kind of way? There's there's a lot of open questions there. Obviously, if we're looking at this from a Buddhist perspective, uh, we we have a we have a pretty strong uh, uh, assumption that you know you do more morality. Uh, sorry, you do more meditation. Your morality gets better. Um, but it, and this is you know this seems to track 
quite well, but you know, we just don't have a lot of empirical literature on that topic. So that's that's sort of the field that I'm involved in. And I do I do a whole bunch of other stuff as well that's probably not so interesting. Thank you, Ajahn. So with the uh, with the research into morality, perhaps you could first talk about what your, I know one of your topics or angles has been how we conceive of morality alongside the concept of not self. And so perhaps you could speak to that. And then I would be interested if there were any particularly interesting findings from your looking into the way different meditation techniques affect morality, like loving kindness versus mindfulness. Were there any kind of surprises in that mix and things we should keep in mind. So not yep. self and morality and then meditative technique and morality. Yep, cool. I'll, I'll jump on the first one. I'll jump, <laughs> sorry, I'll jump on the second question first because it's a, um, it, it's a bit easier to, it's a bit easier to, to go through the not self and morality and responsibility thing. That's a big, that's a big, huge one. So I'll go through the, go through the latter first. So what we what we find, because most obviously most of the scientific literature that we have on these practices come from, you could say, secular mindfulness-based interventions. Sometimes they're shorter interventions. Some, so there might be what's called an induction, which is only 15 minutes or so. Sometimes they're longer, two, three months worth of practice. So you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of messiness there. But generally, what we find when we look at the, the kind of mindfulness literature, uh, it does seem to have a it does seem to have a good effect on things like our moral cognitions, our reasoning, our judgments, our decisions, um, and you know, it all, uh, and it also seems to have a reasonably uh, mixed effect on our actual moral behaviours. So when we actually help somebody else, or when we want to do something for society, it seems to have a pretty good influence on that. But what it what it doesn't seem to have so much of an impact on is our you could say our moral emotions and our moral motivations. You know, obviously most mindfulness is aimed at just being aware of things and letting things come and go. So what happens a lot is, you know, you still don't, you still have the emotions coming up. Say for example, like anger, these things still come up. Uh, so we don't really change it with these kinds of more modern mindfulness based practices. Also our moral intentions to, to actually do good, it, it actually has a bit of a negative effect on those. So say, for example, if we have, uh, after harming somebody or doing something wrong to somebody, the guilt that we usually feel from that, that would make us sort of repair that behavior, that seems to get flattened with uh, modern mindfulness practices. So there's a there's an interesting question there of like, well, yeah, it seems to improve some areas and yeah, sort of weaken, weaken some other areas. So we just have to be careful with modern, kind of modern mindfulness practices. When we look at the other side of that, though, with compassion and loving kindness practices, you know, we might obviously, yeah, we get we get a seemingly good effect on our moral emotions. It does seem to improve change things like, you know, we get more compassion, we get more kindness, all these kinds of things. But it also, but the flip side of that is maybe it doesn't, you know, doesn't do as much to our actual behaviors. So we might intend to do something good, but it doesn't mean we will do something good from compassion and kindness-based practices. So that you can see that there are these different kinds of meditations. They do do different things to our morality in some kind of way. So that's just generally the, the sort of the state of the literature at the moment. It, it's, in, um, it's interesting because I feel like the, uh, 
you know, if you speak about some of the possibly flattening quality on some moral intuitions, I mean, modern mindfulness really is often taught in a in a void. And it strikes me that so often a, in a complete Buddhist conception, it would be taught alongside, you know, these very clear teachings on sila and morality. And, and that seems like a, it is an interesting place to look into these topics, uh, you know, somewhat in in a different context, perhaps, or something. I'm not sure, but yeah. I, I, th I think I think one of the big things that's missing is uh, uh, like right effort. So when we look at right effort, you know, right effort is the you know is the the capacity to uh, give rise to unarisen uh, uh, wholesome states, to continue them. Any unwholesome states that have arisen, work to abandon them. That isn't really taught so much in more modern mindfulness is like just be just be aware of things coming and going be non-judgmental but from our you know from this buddhist perspective we're, it's like no 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 like try to get rid of the bad things <laughs> that are in your mind so i think i think probably that's one of the uh, at least at least a, a, a one big factor that i see that is that is different there maybe just uh, circling back this might be a good in into this whole arena of um meditation or not self and morality and um yeah yeah because you know a huge aspect of morality is making an effort is an aspect of right effort to refrain from doing unethical things and to engage yeah. in things which are ethical and um yeah so curious on how you would uh study that and what the results are i mean it's it's easy to have anecdotal evidence on both sides i mean you have people who purport to have very deep insights into not self, yep. you know, in these various different Buddhist lineages that perhaps don't have as much emphasis on morality and then all the trouble that that can create. Um, and then on the other end, you know, just, there's just anecdotal evidence about how I, I meditate and then my, um, you know, I have insights into not self and my morality can actually improve. So yeah, can you speak to this, um, the relationship yeah. between so this is this is where we're a little bit like hamstringed because it's it's so hard to empirically look at this, um, and like we just we the bottom line is we actually don't have any empirical literature on this topic at all. Um, so the the area that I'm more working with the kind of not self and morality it's more philosophical and theoretical and what could be some of the implications. Um, I'm trying to work on ways that we can maybe look at this from a scientific perspective, but at the moment it's just it's just purely kind of theoretical. So yeah, there's there's a lot of, lot of difficult. Yeah, you emphasize a lot of different questions you can ask with these things, and really all we all we have is these assumptions that okay, well you know a lot of people say if you have this kind of not self experience, it breaks the boundary between self and others. This actually allows you to. This actually allows you to, you know, understand that another person's harm is your harm as well. So potentially, this can make you, you know, act in a more moral way. Other people, other people might sort of make the make the make the make the claim that actually, well, if you're getting, if you're totally getting rid of this sense of identity, the sense of self, this is actually really difficult because you know you, know, you need a sense of self. You need a sense of agency to be. You know, to be seen as a moral agent in the world and be held responsible in some kind of way. 
um, and the, or if you don't have a sense of self in some way, this can be seen as problematic because it's like, well, you know, anything can really go, you know, if you don't hold yourself accountable in some kind of way, everything is just a kind of convention or whatever. So again, there's sort of a lot of, a lot of questions and not a lot of good answers at the moment. Um, as I said, I, I approach this more from a philosophical and conceptual kind of perspective and I have uh, some, some, some ideas around how the teaching of not self relates to moral responsibility. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a pretty picture that I paint and it's a long, it's a long one. So maybe we can, we can, we can either jump into it now or we can go into it on another day. Um, but the, the, I think I'll actually, I'll just summarize it quickly. Um, I, I think obviously if we have not self, uh, this, this sort of means that, you know, that we, we don't, you know, we, um, that you know, from a Buddhist perspective, we don't really have a kind of agentive self that is the controller of actions. We don't control the kundas. Um, so this actually poses a bit of a problem for the way current conceptualizations of moral responsibility work. Current conceptualizations of moral responsibility work in a way where you need an agent who has certain powers and capacities to be able to do something and, and exert control over the world. Buddhists, we don't really think of things in that way. We think of things in more in an interdependent kind of way. So it's the, the, the way that not self from Buddhist perspectives lines up to current conceptualizations of what moral responsibility is, it doesn't seem to match. It doesn't seem to match in some kind of way. This seems like a problem, but in actuality, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, we know it's not, it's not really a problem. We've got 2,600 years of going, you know, we're like, we're fine. Like you know, <laughs> we've got the whole thing worked out. We're okay. It's, you know, um, so what I essentially argue that we have is what we have from a Buddhist perspective is we have a kind of selfless responsibility where, you know, you're not really holding a specific agent responsible for something. You're basically, you're looking at a kind of causal responsibility of, 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 of an organism a person that sort of passes through time. You can, you can attribute a kind of responsibility onto them, but it's more of a kind of causal responsibility. You know, this agent, you know, this organism did some causes, the result was this thing. So we can say that they're, we can say in this way that they're causally or selflessly responsible. And what this does is I think, I actually think this is a nicer way to think about moral retribution and things like this. You know, when we think of retribution nowadays, it's like, you know, you're a bad person, you did something wrong, let's punish you um, uh, because you're some sort of evil soul or something like that. From this Buddhist perspective, what this gives us is it's like, well, no, what you're just trying to do is going, well, if you, you're not an evil person that has an evil soul that you need to be blamed or punished for. It's like you're just a bunch of causal conditions and, you know, we're just trying to sort of correct you in some kind of way, sort of moving things in a, in a causal way. So, yeah, that's the that's the kind of idea I have with not self and moral responsibility. So, so Arjun, what's very interesting for me here is the teachings of not self, I think most of us have the experience of you do let go of your clinging to the aggregates or to a very strong view. And when you let go of it, it's not that there's nothing left, but rather if you're meditating, there's a profound intuitive sense of, of certain things like say a, a morality that that is somehow really resonant with the heart and 
ostensibly an arahant would behave completely morally. So yeah. there seems to be something, it's not that when one let go, let's go, there's nothing. Mm -hmm. And this really strikes me as a, a pretty profound problem with uh, this, you know, approaching the question in a philosophical ways, if there are these, and I know you're working with this by trying to map scientific language onto meditative states and, and looking at the field. Mm. And the problem being that a lot of these researchers haven't had deep meditation. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. I, I'm curious because you've had experience with the heart of tradition. You've been around the Kruba Ajats who have perhaps the most deep practice of almost anyone living mm. um, and maybe not a lot of philosophical learning. And then you're now in this realm um, where there's a great deal of thought about what it means to let go, mm. perhaps with very little understanding of what you come to when you do do that. And of course, I could imagine it just finding itself in knots like much as of Western philosophy has done for 2,500 years. Yep. And this isn't to say that Buddhism, you know, the, that there's not a room for a balance there, that, that, that both sides don't have a chance to learn from one another. But how do you hold that contrast? And do you feel you know, how do you feel this limit being approached, this asymptote uh, in the scientific realm where like, you just don't think that they can reach all the way? Um, and what do you see us being able to learn from this more precise language? Uh, and I know that applies to the moral realm and to this uh, deep meditative states mapped on the scientific language. Yeah. So yeah, as I, as I said, I, I you're right, like, and what I usually try to bring up a lot is like, the, like the different projects, these things are different projects. So, um, and they're different ways of looking at things, which is, which for me is awesome. Like I, I, I actually really, really love, I love different ways of looking at things and thinking about things. It's, um, um, it keeps one epistemically humble. So I really like it. So as I said, from example, with the, on the philosophical side of things, like the, you know, the kinds of, the kinds of, things that you need for a moral agent is very, very different from what we have from a Buddhist Buddhist concept. And so it's more about saying, well, how can we sort of, you know, you have this kind of concept, we have this kind of concept, how, you know, but the reality is, you know, there's, there's some sort of underlying reality there. It's like, how do we, you know, how do we get to that a little bit more? You know, can we sort of talk to each other in the same kind of language? And so I think, I think it's about sort of seeing, it's like, well, okay, here's some, here's some tensions. Here's, here's where we have attention, but you know, it's okay. It's okay, you know, you know, we can sort of, you know, sort of understand the world in this particular kind of way and say, we do it this way, you do it that way, that's fine, no problem. And so I think, I think we sort of have uh, sort of this responsibility um, as monastics in some kind of way, and also as scientists and also as philosophers to actually listen to other disciplines as well. Um, because if not, we just end up talking over each other now this sort of tracks on to tracks on to these you know speaking about these more as you said these more deeper states in meditation um you know we, we really do have to sort of talk to each other and sort of understand each other to really get a grasp on what these things are um so so say for example so say for example um uh a nice movement at the moment in scientific literature is that a lot of a lot of like really keen young researchers are looking at these very very deep states of meditation even you know some of them are, you know going into the jhanas uh, some are even going into nirvana samapati and all these kinds of things 
you know, trying to look at these kinds of states, trying to look at states of awakening, all these, you know, kind of sort of states, all these things. Um, some of that stuff's out there in the scientific literature now, which is which is really, really cool that we're that we're you know moving in that kind of but in saying that as well, you know, we as monastics sort of have a responsibility to go, okay, so what are you actually talking about? What are you talking about? When you say Nirodha Samabadi, what are you actually talking about? When you say jhanas, what are you actually talking about? Okay, great. That's your conceptualization of what this thing is. Here's how we maybe conceptualize it. Here's how we think about it. Can we match these two things up? Can we sort of have a dialogue here where we go, well, okay, that's great. The way you see this, this is okay. The way we see it, this is okay. So there's a there's different ways. So just essentially just continuing to talk to each other because if not, then what happens is is you know, we end up you know maybe you know the current science ends up building a science based on things that aren't the thing that they're thinking about. So it might be based on a kind of jhana that's not really jhana. It might be based on nirodha samapati that's not nirodha samapati. Would you define that term for our listeners, Ajahn? Sorry, nirodha samapati is it's one of the one of the more profound and deep uh, jhana states that are in the in the arupa jhanas. The the um, and it's the uh, it's uh, the the state of neither perception or non-perception. And so the idea here is is that everything sort of drops away, and so there is no perception or uh, there is no perception at all. The very very deep states of of samadhi meditation. So yeah, so we just have to be, you know, just have to be careful. We just have to be careful and talk to each other and go, well, okay, just be careful because if you start to build a science based on a particular kind of understanding, then what actually ends up happening is, is like, well, and if we go, well, no, it's a different thing, then everybody sort of understands it in this one way and you build a science and then you might say, well, the, the monastic side of it, the real practitioner side of it, it's wrong because that, that doesn't map onto the, the science that we've done because you've basically built it off a, a wrong, wrong kind of foundation or, or a limited foundation. Ajahn, I'm curious. I really appreciate your framing things in terms of, or the way that you look at this in terms of epistemic um, humility. So this is having a humility around the way that we know, the way that we can know, um, having a sense of, um, yeah, that maybe I don't know everything that I could know and mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really beautiful. And there's, um, yeah, I mean, you could say that that's the ideal in certainly in, in science is to be have that epic epistemic humility. Uh, I'm curious if you think there's a limit to that. I mean, just to give it, uh, you know, there's certainly a huge place for it. And obviously, in terms of like interpersonal interactions to have a humility about what I'm assuming I can know and what you know and what um, I don't know, et cetera. Um, but, you know, this, what might be a place for, for faith? You know, I mean, um, we're all making a certain assumptions um, yep. that are either conscious or unconscious. You know, it's, it's an epistemic um, assumption that, uh, you know, hurting people is immoral and that we don't want to do that. Um, we're valuing that and, and saying that there's worth to it. Or, yeah, you know, the Buddha, you know, in certain places suggesting that right view is an, a view that there's, um, yeah, other realms and mm. that there's rebirth, et cetera. So what, what's the scope in your, in your view of epistemic humility? Is, 
is does there come a place where you say actually i i have to you know put my cards out and um you know put down a um a hypothesis a working hypothesis deeply in the table so. yeah so the way i like to think about you know think about faith and this whole kind of project of what we know and what we don't really know i the way i like to think about it is a constant process of calibrating confidence so we have a kind of confidence in something but we always we're always trying to sort of shift it and move it and as you said we're, we're using these kinds of things what we believe and what we have faith in as a kind of as, as really as a kind of working hypothesis and like and this is like this is great like it's it's moving you towards something but if you have this kind of humility what you're doing is sort of you know you have a confidence that you know say for example something like enlightenment is possible it's like great well i'm going to move towards it but i have to sort of keep calibrating my confidence to to map on to what i'm experiencing and so i think from a very much a kind of phenomenological perspective like this is what we do anyway you know we think something is possible when we try to move towards it and we, we sort of have to like calibrate our confidence of moving towards it and what I think is cool is like, this is also what we do in science as well, or what we should be trying to do in science as well. We have a, a, a particular kind of theory, particular kind of belief about something. We try to find evidence for it. We sort of calibrate our confidence towards that thing. We can never say something's totally for sure, 100% true, real, no questions asked. We can always we can only just go. We have very high confidence in this thing, and so I think from the Buddhist path and the Buddhist perspective, we can do the same. We can do the same thing. It's like I have a lot of confidence that you know that you know these deep stages of jhana are possible, enlightenment's possible, all these kinds of things are possible, and so I'm going to try to uh, have confidence that they're that they're they're available. So I, I essentially just have to keep working towards that and just be open and aware of like, well, I don't know yet. I don't know, you know, I'm not enlightened. I don't know enlightenment is really possible, but I'm very confident that it is because I have all this other evidence. Um, so I'm going to just keep trying to calibrate my confidence towards that by, by my own practice, by talking to other people and by, you know, being open and listening to, to different, uh, uh, interpretations of what enlightenment is, different kind of enlightenment experiences, all these different, you know, different cultures that have these different things, being very, very open and just really kind of calibrating and moving in this kind of way. I think for me, that's a kind of, that's the, you know, when you can get epistemic humility right, that's that's what it does. And the last point on that is what I, what I really think it does uh, is that it actually keeps us moving forward. If you sort of get stuck in a belief, you have real strong faith in one thing and you aren't epistemically humble in this way, you don't progress because you're just sure of this thing. But if you can remain open a little bit, it actually keeps you moving forward, keeps you progressing in this way, which I, for me is, is really, really important. Thank you, Ajahn. And it does strike me that you found yourself at an interesting convergence of somewhat parallel ways of approaching reality internally and externally. I mean, so much of the scientific process of feedback, of epistemic humility, and of calibrating confidence um, 
on a kind of organizational or societal level with scientists, you know, putting papers out there and then being tested. I mean, there's so many analogs within meditative experience for just trying to, you know, we're all kind of mixing up chemicals in the lab and just trying to stop kicking the table constantly and actually have some room to be careful with looking at our experience. So I, I really do appreciate this intersection you've you've landed in. And um, we wanted to open mess it up. say that again. Hopefully I don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> We're rooting for you, Rajan. So we do have uh, some questions in the chat. And if people want to type anything else in, please feel free to. The first is from Jessica Harris. Ajahn Satoro, do you see morality or a person's moral compass as being innate? Really good question, Jessica. I th depends what you mean by innate as well. Um, uh, but I, 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 what I think you mean by innate is like you, we have this kind of we have this kind of personal intuition about what's moral and what's not moral. Um, I think in some kind of way. Um, what our moral compass is like is really determined by a lot of many, many different causal factors, the kind of environment that you grew up in, the kind of biology that you have, the kind of parents that you have, the kind of education you have, uh, your, your expert to uh, a religious community, all, all these different kinds of things shape and move your moral compass in, in some kind of way. Um, so I, I think I think it's a very very complex process of of how you develop your moral compass. I'm not so sure it's just this kind of thing that you're born with, and you're you're born with a, a particular kind of way of morally viewing the world and the kind of norms uh, the kind of norms that you might ascribe to. I think it's just like a very long process. Again, I think it's this process of causal conditioning and, and constant calibration that are moving, it's moving your moral compass in a particular kind of way. In some way though, I do think, you know, most neurotypical humans um, realize that it's, that it's, if you say something nasty to somebody and they cry when you're three years old, that this doesn't feel good. You know, we do have a lot of these things hardwired into us. So, or if you harm somebody, you feel bad, so you shouldn't do this thing. I think a lot of those kinds of things are hardwired into us, but just the degree that we respond to those things is very different. So Arjun, quickly, before we move on to one of the other questions in the chat, um, in terms of this conditioning process, you've spent time in a culture where the society's societal structure, um, in some ways very much, uh, I think there can be this mirror between the culture and societal structure and, and how people do internalize these moral intuitions over time. You've been in Thailand where there's a very clear moral hierarchy, just as the society is very hierarchical in many senses. Yep. In the Coming back to the West, um, mm. where right now it's actually in some ways a very lateral structure in, in many ways, uh, mm. it's somewhat chaotic. There's not a lot of moral, you know, uh, grounding in, in many ways, or at least not ones people are very, um, it's not something that's spoken about a lot. Um, how do you see the, how do you see it influencing people 
and and kind of playing into this moment today, which is somewhat chaotic and people are having trouble with. And what do you see people as needing right now? Like where's, what do they need that Buddhism can provide? Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. It's, <laughs> um, Yeah, what, it, it depends what sort of thread that I tug on, like what the answer is going to be here, because there there is so many things that it, that it can provide. So if you you know if you're looking at things from this kind of social social level, yeah, obviously I've lived in in cultures where you know Buddhism is very much part of the culture and the moral thing is a part of the culture, but that culture still has problems, obviously. So we can't just go. There's a one-to-one -one relationship here of like, well, if it's all Buddhist, then it's all good. No, obviously, there's there's plenty of cultures that are that are function very well um, you know, without Buddhism. So we have to sort of realize that that's a part of it. But you know, what can Buddhist provide? Uh, what what can we? What can Buddhism give to society from a moral perspective? You know, one of the biggest things aspect of having these practices and this whole ecology of practices and this whole ecology of teaching that is is allowing you to you know, to you know modulate and change all to some extent something about your own mind you know a lot of the, the more problems that we sort of see in the world today is as it stems from people's minds you know prob moral problems in the world come from people that essentially that their mind is not so great. So, 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 you know, Buddhism really actually gives you these, a lot of these, like this whole toolkit of practices to make your mind better. So I think if we use a lot of these tools um, from this perspective, you know, this actually can start to make these small, these small changes in society through, through the minds of the people that actually practice it. Not from this kind of like, Social level, you know, we should all take the five precepts, or you know, we should all, you know, bow three times, take the five precepts, do all those kinds of things. No, I, you know, I think I think more from this aspect, of, more from this aspect of, you know, it can really change the quality of people's minds, and and really that's if we're going to change the morality of the world, it does have to start with individuals' minds. Individual minds have to work together. If many minds can work together in this kind of way, then we get a more of a social uh, social improvement from this. Thank you. So the next question, uh, perhaps somewhat similar to the previous one about morality or moral compass being innate. This one is about is having confidence in the process conditioned. So uh, the end of things, not asking if it's innate, but is is it conditioned? Puja Asa, Puja. I think Puja knows my my sort of position position on this, and I I, I love I love this kind of stuff. So I might I might answer this in too long of a too long of a fashion kind of thing. I do think to, I think if we're taking Buddhism seriously and we're taking things like dependent origination seriously, we have to say that actually all things are conditioned in some way. Like everything is conditioned. Um, you know who we are right now is conditioned to some extent by causes going back. Eon, you know, incalculable, incalculable eons kind of thing. <laughs> world expansions, world contractions, all these kinds of things. So what we are right now uh, is the result of causal conditioning. So the kind of confidence that we have, I do think that that is conditioned. 
and do that and it's conditioned in some kind of way it's dependent on so many different things you know you're exposed to for example confidence in the path to enlightenment uh from the buddhist path to enlightenment this is conditioned on you sort of having the, the kind of cognitive capacities to be able to pick up a book on buddhism and learn about buddhism and all these kinds of things uh having the capacity to be able that you know the the time and the energy and the effort to to meditate to have these kinds of uh have these kinds of experiences so i i think the confidence that we have itself is also something that's conditioned as well but again when you know what we're trying to do is sort of nudge it in the right direction it's, it's not something that we ultimately control i can't really control the fact that i don't have confidence in the christian god it's not really something i can control but if i if i really wanted to go well i want to gain more confidence in the christian god i you know start to nudge my, myself in that kind of way and over time i'd probably end up with more confidence in the christian god so confidence in the path in the buddha's path you know something you know we think it's useful we're practicing with it um but I, you know it is something that is conditioned so we just need to put in you know more causal conditions to sort of move us into more confidence but yeah i think i think confidence is conditioned as well like everything like everything else that was uh you know hearing you speak just sort of maps it onto the uh, process of uh condition this that conditionality as i understand it which is that our current state is the cause of previous conditions plus our internal or our current input so yep. you know you're speaking about faith sada like everything is conditioned but then um you can also uh, exercise some degree of nudging, as you put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have another question, Ajahn. Warm screening, venerables. Is any research being conducted into kindfulness? Mindfulness and loving kindness combined like the light and warmth of the sun. And if not, Ajahn Sadaro, any interest? I, uh, I'm just adding no. that myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's, o there's, only, there's only so many giants I can tackle. Like, <laughs> and so, uh, so, so no to, am I going to do it? No, because there's only so many things I can do. Is there research in it? Yeah, obviously yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of research into obviously self-compassion practices, uh, uh, kindness practices, um, uh, but just depends on the domain of what you're looking at. So say for example, with myself, I'm looking a lot at the morality side of things there's there's a bit of there's a bit of research there into uh, uh compassion kindness kindfulness kind of practices on morality a little bit you know but not but not so much um but in other domains mental health all these kinds of these kinds of things yeah there's a you know, there is a, a decent amount of research uh in those areas kindfulness is a bit more of a Adrian brahmism so it's nobody nobody sort of like uh nobody's like really talking about that so much but obviously when we talk about mindfulness from a current perspective a lot of the times self-compassion compassion practice kindness practices actually gets like melded into that anyway so a lot of times when people just talk about mindfulness they're actually talking that thing as well so yeah there is quite a lot of research out there but no i'm not going to do it because i've only got so much so many hours <laughs> John, our next question is, uh, how do the three unwholesome roots of intention or action, which is uh, greed, anger, and delusion, greed, delusion, and anger play into your research? And just to add something onto that, I mean, 
um, greed and anger are relatively easier to track. I mean, just physiologically, the biometrics of uh, craving, I mean, and aversion, you know, those are just easier to track, whether it's facial tracking of uh, micro muscles, et cetera, or but, um, yeah, how does one even define delusion in this sense? So, so, so this is, it's, yeah, you, you're right to some extent. Um, like there's you know, greed and hatred, uh, greed and hatred, they're a bit easier, easier for us to track, but the kind of delusion, it's a lot harder to track. So I think like there is, I, there, there is a lot of, how would you say, work in like cognitive neuroscience uh, 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 that can maybe look at a kind of delusion in some kind of way. So essentially the way I think about uh, a vidya or, or, or delusion is in a way what, what we're doing is in some way we're, we're, we're misperceiving and misrepresenting reality to some extent. And so there's actually, there's a long history of philosophy and science about how we, we you know, we're actually looking at the world and we're actually, we're not interpreting it in the right kind of way or the way that we're interpreting it. It's maybe not the way that the world actually is. So I think, I think there is a lot of interesting literature out there where we can actually track what we maybe think avidya is onto some of the scientific processes or uh, processes that are out there. I think it is, I think it is possible. And, and I actually, I am I, thinking about a way to talk about this in some kind of way. It's, and again, it's a, it's, a, it's a back burner thing that I've got going on at the moment. And yeah, so I think there is, there is a way we can sort of think about misperceiving reality or misrepresenting reality in some kind of way that sort of tracks onto a vidya. So say, for example, you know, I'm looking out now, there's this kind of table thing in front of me. I think it's this kind of wood thing with a big stump or whatever. I'm seeing a brown, you know, a brown thing brown kind of table kind of thing, but it's like, well, you know, okay, but that's really just my brain interpreting the signals that are coming in. Uh, and I think, well, I think that's a beautiful table. I, you know, I'd like to have this table in my home, all these kinds of things. This is just a kind of me sort of perceiving reality in a particular kind of way, but it's not necessarily the way that reality is. So I think we can, you know, I think we can actually look at uh, Avidya in this kind of way. Um, but the, you know, the question was, how does it play into my research? Well, I'm just, I'm under the constant influence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it does play into my research. <laughs> it plays into everything that I do. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm as susceptible to it as everybody else. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn. I think we have time for one or two more. Yep. How much agreement is there around the characteristics of deep meditative states, uh -huh. e.g. jhanas? Are the deep states people report homogenous or does it vary so much person to person? it's hard to study. Yeah, good, good questions. Um, this is something that's taking up a lot of my energy at the moment. Um, well, it, like uh, from science, so, okay, let's, let's sort of take a, like a step back from the Buddhist perspective of this. How much homogeny is there in interpretations of jhana in the Buddhist community? Not much. <laughs> you know, we have, we've had the jhana wars and all these kinds of things. So we can see even from the Buddhist perspective of what the jhanas is, there's a lot of disagreement there. There's some homogeny in 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 uh, in particular lineages, between different lineages, maybe.
maybe there's not so much homogeneity. So we see that there's different conceptualizations of what the jars are. Now, when we start to move maybe into the scientific realm of these things, it's, it's only the science of this stuff is only just starting to emerge. Um, it's only just starting to come about. So there's, there's some, you know, there's obviously there's some disagreement about it. Um, there's some, there's some people say, well, okay, the kind of jhana that you're doing an MRI study on, well, maybe that's not really jhana. That's, you know, um, so I think, I think there is a little bit of disparity in the, in the views around it, but I actually think that's why, as I said before, you know, actually we need to be involved in this kind of stuff. So we can say it's like, well, okay, this is good. This kind of states of jhana you're having, that might be fair enough, but we maybe think about it a different way. So I think like anything, there's always going to be some sort of disagreement about it, but as long as we talk to each other with an open mind about these things and listen to each other about them, I think, I think that's actually what moves the whole project forward, not only in science, but also in Buddhism as well. In Buddhist perspectives, we have to go, jhanas, states, we think about it in this way, you think about it in that way, that's fine you know okay how can we how can we sort of line these things up i i think sort of that's always the best way forward that's a good note to end on ajahn so uh we are gonna as most people know move to zoom now for a more intimate discussion ajahn satter is actually going to be joining us for a while so uh if you are interested in kind of continuing the conversation i'm going to paste the link into the chat if you can't see it there go to clearmountainmonastery.org, navigate down to the Wednesday evening live stream uh, event listing, and you'll find the Zoom link there. Um, but Ajahn, we just hope we actually, you know, get you here in person one of these days, and uh, then we won't just have to have you on Zoom, but uh, we'll be here. So thanks for joining us. Happy to come when I can. Okay. Ajahn, thank you so much, really. All the best.